Good morning. I hope you're having a good week if you're a guest with us. Uh, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and uh, we're glad that you would join us this morning. If you do me a favor, there is a Connect card in the seat back that is in front of you, and I'm going to give you a few minutes to fill that out while I, I walk you through a few important announcements, some things that are coming up in the life of our church that we would love for you and your family to get involved with. Uh, but if you fill out that Connect card, we have the joy of praying for you and your family, getting you the information you need about um, our church and, and what it means to get connected around here. But a few, few things. One, uh, Holy Week is coming up, and it actually, uh, we are kicking things off a little bit different than normal, and it starts next Sunday evening, and there are tickets available for Easter songs and stories, um, followed by a lot of other events that week, and you can uh, go on our website, the front page of the website, and you can learn about all the different things going on starting next Sunday night and going through that week. It's going to be a special week in the life of our church, and we want you to be involved with it. Uh, but before that even takes place, next Saturday, April, the, uh, am I right on the date? What's the date next Saturday? The 13th. Okay, April 13th. Um, we have a really neat event. Now, I was uh, just transparent. On the way in this morning, driving in, I, I like to listen to podcasts a lot. And I was listening to a podcast um, on what it means to build multi-generational family teams on mission. And the idea that we need to think apart from just us. We need to think about our parents and grandparents. And grandparents need to think about their kids and their grandchildren. And what it means to be family units. And that, that Christians should really, our families should look different than what the world tells us uh, they should. One of the things we want to do to help you do that and to do it well is we're going to have this event uh, honoring your parents. Now, many people, you might not think, hey, I don't really have much to learn from that. Look, this is an event that will begin to help you think multi-generationally help you think about how to take care of your parents if they're aging, but think about your grandparents, and it's going to help grandparents think about how to leave a legacy. And so we want you to be a part of that, and that's taking place on Saturday. So again, jump on the website and learn about it. Uh, stop at the Welcome Center. We want you to be involved in this special event taking place next Saturday. Uh, last, I will tell you that we, are start we have classes that take place during the second hour. Uh, we really believe in adult education, Christian education, and that it, it changes lives. And so I want to uh, challenge you to think about joining a class. One of the classes that's actually starting uh, next Sunday, correct? Next Sunday, uh, we're bringing in Brad Nelson, who runs a ministry in uh, inner city Indianapolis, and he's going to be teaching a class on uh, how to bring the gospel to the Muslim community. Uh, what does it mean to engage? And it's going to be a five-week class, so you can have one week, then a week off for Easter, and then four weeks. And uh, we would encourage you to get involved and be a part of that class. So. You can learn more about that at the Welcome Center as well, but it starts next Sunday morning during the 9.30 hour, and you can learn uh, how to bring the gospel to the Muslim community. So, and he's one of our missionaries, so it's neat to just get connected to one of the missions we support as well. Now, let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, you are good, and for that we're grateful. Sometimes it's hard to see, uh, but this morning, my prayer as we take a look at this passage, this section of scripture in the gospel of mark that you would meet us in this place and help us see clearly i pray for this in jesus name amen uh yesterday i came uh home and i asked my kids to help me with my sermon which not always awesome but it, it's good sometimes they're like hey what about this dad and i'm like i don't want to tell the whole church about messing up uh but i i came home and i said hey i got i got a a, a goal for you guys i i'm gonna tell you i took these uh ten pieces of Legos, and I built a spaceship. 
and it was awesome, and I want you to recreate it. But I'm not going to tell you what it looks like, and I'm not going to tell you the instructions. I'm going to give you the same 10 pieces and see if you can. Now, they had different reactions. Uh, my son, Luke, was like, that's impossible. Uh, like, literally, that's what he said. Dad, that's impossible. Uh, and he's seven. My 11-year-old was a little more confident. He's like, we all know I'm going to be the one that does it. Uh, literally, that's what he said. But we got some work to do, buddy. Me and you are going to hang out after the project. <laughs> and my daughter's like, all right, I'll try. Uh, and so three different reactions. And here's what they came up with, uh, these three different spaceships uh, that they built. Uh, this one here is my daughter. Um, she built this spaceship. And it is nothing like the one that um, I told her to build. But it's, it kind of fits her. And she explained why she built it this way. And here's her Lego spaceship. Then you've got my son, Luke, and he said, I got two rockets on the back. This is the fastest of all the spaceships, and it really doesn't matter if it looks like yours, Dad. It would probably beat yours in a race. All right, so there's Luke's. Uh, and then here's Caleb's. He's like, well, since this is exactly what yours looked like, uh, here it is. And I'm like, that's nothing uh, like what mine looked like, but you did a good job, buddy, and he, he built it. And uh, he built the spaceship. None of them looked like mine did with the same Lego pieces. They had all the same pieces, different colors, same size and shape. And they went after it. And what was interesting to me is that their dad, their father, said, here's what I want you to do. Uh, and they didn't refer to anything that I had actually told them. They just kind of went after it on their own and built their own version of it. I got to thinking, this is the reason I gave them this experiment is because this is what I'm seeing a lot of people do with the person of Jesus. Now, I get it. There are a lot of people that are kind of hostile toward Jesus, and, and you've interacted with them, and I've interacted with them, and, and oftentimes people are like, I don't really want to, look, Jesus can be a great teacher because he was, he can be this great moral leader, that's awesome, but there's no way he's God, and they're kind of hostile, and they, they kind of put Jesus into this category. They build him the way they want to build him. But, but look, here's where my concern comes. It's with those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of God. I've got my heavenly father. And my heavenly father has told me very clearly how he wants me to see Jesus. Very clearly how he wants me to look at Jesus. But instead, I'm going to take the Legos and build my own version of Jesus. I'm going to make Jesus say the things that make me comfortable, maybe get me a little bit uncomfortable, but I don't want to go too extreme. I want Jesus to say really interesting, cool things. I want Jesus to be a really hip and cool way for me to connect with culture. But when it comes to Jesus saying things that might really challenge where I'm at, I don't really want to go that far. And you've maybe encountered people that uh, are forming Jesus or they're seeing Jesus based on what other people have said, what culture tells them about Jesus, what uh, a preacher or a popular teacher tells them about Jesus, but they're not necessarily referring to what God's word has said, the instruction manual. See, it's one thing to build a spaceship, but it's another thing to actually listen to what your father has said and put the pieces together the way he told you to and build it the way he wants you to see it. You can make it look the way you want. It can fit your personality, and it can be really cool, and it can really be a reflection of who you are and still miss the mark. See, the reason I say this is we're going to be studying a passage of Scripture today where uh, Jesus is going to really challenge, in some ways encourage, but really challenge us to begin to see him the way he wants to be seen. See, he's going he's gonna to come at this from a very unique angle, and we're actually going to look at a, a whole section uh, in the Gospel of Mark, not just one passage, but 
In this section, Jesus is going to heal two blind men, and in between this passage, in between this, he's going to do some teaching on what it means to be spiritually blind, to not really listen to the instructions, to not really build uh, your view of Jesus around what God has said, but instead to miss the mark, continually miss the mark. And he bookends this with these two miracles, but uh, the first is the one that I want to hone in on a little bit more specifically, but would you do me a favor and stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 22. Here's what Mark tells us. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid hands on him and said, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees that are walking. When Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I see men walking like trees. Don't let that pass up on you. That's a unique experience. I want you to picture this. What, a, what an incredibly strange experience this man would have had. This guy's entire life is changing in just this short passage of scripture that we just read. He is going from a, a state of perpetual and complete darkness to being able to see with full clarity of vision. One moment he's blind, the next he's not. Picture the scene. This group of friends, they bring this this other friend of theirs, and we don't know how long he's been blind. There's indication in the text that he'd not been blind from birth, but had somehow gotten ill or something had happened, and he'd been blind, and they want Jesus to heal him, and so they bring him to Jesus, and they beg him. That word beg is a perfect translation. They plead with Jesus on behalf of their friend, would you please, would you please heal him? Now, this is a whole different sermon, but when was the last time that you begged God on behalf of somebody else. I mean, really pleaded with them. These friends, man, they wanted their friend to experience. They were desperate. When was the last time we were desperate on behalf of the people that we love and care about? Jesus then takes this man by the hand and takes him outside of the village, away from the crowd, away from anybody who's going to create or make a scene out of this. Jesus does this for multiple reasons, but one of them is that he wants this to be a very personal experience for this blind man. I mean, he wants this guy to really understand what's about to take place for him, and he pulls him aside, not creating a scene, not letting the crowd gather, not using this as some sort of a political platform or to, to build a brand. Instead, he pulls him aside, and he just says, just me and you, I want you to really experience what's about to happen in your life. And then he does something that would offend most of us. He spits in his face. <laughs> but before we go on, like I want you to think about this. I wonder how many times this man had been spit at. I wonder how many times this man, you know, he made his living begging inside this village. He had no other way of an income, and so he would sit and beg. And I wonder how many times he'd been spit at. And I wonder if he thought this time is just another one of those jokes. They bring me in front of somebody, and someone's going to spit in my face, and it's just like uh, I'm going to be the butt of somebody else's joke. Yay, everybody else gets another laugh at me, but then things begin to change. Jesus begins to touch his face. And all of a sudden, his entire world, slowly, an entire world begins to open up to him that just moments before had been closed to him. He begins to see 
in a way that any blind person would do anything to be able to see. It's dim, but it's there. It goes from darkness and slowly gets a little bit lighter, and he begins to see some movement. He begins to discern what it looks like for things to be still and things to move. He can't quite see perfectly yet, but he's gone from complete darkness, and now there's some light. Now he no longer needs somebody to hold his hand and guide him everywhere he's going to be walking. And I wonder, in that moment, what his friends were thinking. What were his friends? These desperate friends that were begging Jesus on his behalf. And he begins to answer their begging, their prayers, if you will. And this man begins to see again. And, and don't let that be lost on you either. Another thing that challenged me in the text this week that I think should challenge us as Christians is this. And and I've, I've met with multiple people who have, who have pleaded with God on behalf of another person. They've continually at least expressed to me that they've been continually praying for somebody else and praying for somebody else. And then when the Lord begins to answer the prayer, they're perplexed as though he wasn't supposed to do that. I think if we're going to pray to the God who calms the storm and heals the blind, when he answers those prayers, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised. Many a time I've prayed for someone, and when God begins to answer the prayer, I'm like, well whoa, I didn't think this actually worked. And maybe you've been there too. I wonder what these friends are thinking when they see we begged, we pleaded, and now he's answering. But Jesus isn't finished. He pauses in this moment, and he asks the man, do, do you see anything yet? The man says, look, I, I, I definitely see something, and, and people are moving, but it's not, it's not quite, it's these trees that, that they're, they're, it's not quite working, and then Jesus touches him again. And he says, now what? And now the trees are standing still and the men are walking. Now he can see with a full clarity. He can see all of the details, facial expressions of all the people that are around him. He can watch the birds fly and appreciate a sunset. And I'm sure in that moment he looked at the face of a group of friends who were perplexed, if not completely surprised in that moment. Jesus had healed. Jesus had responded to their begging. Now, if you study a passage like this, this short little passage in the Gospel of Mark, maybe you begin to have some questions like I did. And the first of most obvious question would be, why in the world did it take more than one touch for Jesus to heal this blind man? I mean, every other time we see Jesus doing some miraculous things, some big, incredible miracle, it doesn't take more than one take. Why did it have more than one take with this particular blind man? It doesn't seem to make sense to me. You see, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and we read about that in the Gospel of John, Lazarus didn't partially come back to life. He was not a zombie when he walked out of there. He was fully alive again. When Jesus calms the storm just a few chapters before where we're at right now in the Gospel of Mark, he didn't just stop the rain and the wind kept going. In fact, Mark tells us that there was a complete calm. And what the text is telling us there is like the sea was like glass. There was no movement. When he spoke the first time to the storm, the storm responded to him. So why is it? Why is it that when he spits on this man's eyes, it didn't take immediately and all of a sudden he could see clearly? I don't quite fully understand it. Now, when you come to a passage like this, one of the things you need to consider, and you need to consider, I want to stress this, you need to consider, as you begin to interact with God's word, is the surrounding context to any passage that you're reading. 
One of the phrases that we've, it's been a little while since we've said it, many of you have been here for a while, can probably remember what we have said ad nauseum, is what? Context is king. Context is king. See, when you're coming to the Bible, it's really important to study the entire passage, the surrounding passage, not just look at what you're looking at, but say, okay, how does this fit into what is really going on? And we're in this whole series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're just slowly going through it. Well, within this entire gospel, there's this section that takes place. And if you're someone who likes to take notes, you can take notes. It begins in chapter 8, verse 4, and it's going to go all the way to chapter 10, verse 52. It's like this pause in the middle of this entire gospel where Mark is saying, I want to really focus in on this one theme. And he bookends it between the healing that we just studied, and, and there in chapter 10, there's another healing of another blind man. And everybody, everything in between that Jesus interacts with, he does some more healings, and a lot of teaching really points to this major truth. This idea of spiritual blindness. See, Jesus physically demonstrates it with the healing of blind men, but then he teaches about what could happen to his disciples. It's a warning, if you will. In the middle of this entire gospel, he's going to address the problem of spiritual blindness. And like we said at the beginning, this is true. Spiritual blindness is a reality for those who are not in Christ. But friends, blind spots develop in the life of Christians all the time. And blind spots, if left unchecked, will wreck your life. They begin to get bigger, and they begin to cloud the vision even more, and you cannot see. And what was once clear is now completely unclear to you. Once you could see and you understood everything, the more you leave these blind spots unchecked and begin to not see Jesus the way Jesus wants you to see him, it wrecks your life. So let's take a look at the surrounding context to better understand what just took place with this healing. We're going to start, if you want to move back just a little bit there in chapter 8, with the, the teaching of the Pharisees. Jesus has just got done. Remember, he fed 5,000 people. Now he's fed 4,000 people. And there's this incredible moment where he does it with just a very little bit of food, uh, five loaves and then seven loaves with the 4,000. And he, and he feeds all of these. It's just this incredible moment in the life of the disciples. And then they begin to go and travel again. And Jesus says, hey, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. And you pick up in, in, uh, right up in verse 14. And the disciples as they're traveling with Jesus. Now keep in mind, please keep in mind, don't let it be lost on you, that he just got done feeding 4,000 people. That's just how many are recorded, let alone the, 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 the women and the children. I mean, there's more than 4,000 people that he actually fed. And he's done feeding all of those people. And now the first thing on their mind is, when they begin to travel, is we forgot to bring bread. We forgot to bring bread. And Jesus, I love his response. He, he begins to ask them some questions that gives us an indication that this section in the Gospel of Mark is starting. Look at verses 17 through 21. Here's what Jesus says. And Jesus, aware of this, aware of their worrying, they're worrying about whether or not they have bread. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Are you not seeing this? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. He says, are you still not getting this? Why are you worrying about bread? You're still not understanding. You're not seeing me clearly. I've been trying to tell you who I am. I've been trying to show you who I am. And you don't see it. Guys, you're still not seeing. You're just... You're trying to construct an idea of me 
that comes from your own understanding. You see, you're trying to make me into who you want me to be, but I'm trying to tell you and show you who I really am. It's time for you to pay attention. Right after this, they encounter this group of friends begging on behalf of their friend, and Jesus heals this blind man. Right after that, they, Jesus begins to ask them a question that's really indicative of the question he asked the blind man halfway through the healing. You see, as he was healing this blind man, he was checking on the progress of the healing. It just took place in stages. It's not that Jesus' power ran out. And he's like, hold on, I got to go charge up again. And he comes, that's not what happened. It, it's, what happens is that there's a progression to the healing that took place in the blind man's life. And Jesus, after the progression that had taken place, all this time spent with his disciples, he looks at them and he says, who does everybody say that I am? And they say, well, Elijah, they say all these things. And then he says, okay, now I'm going to ask you a question. It's as if he's taking his hands off their eyes and he's saying to them, do you see anything yet? But he does it in the form of a question. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who are you saying that I am? Are you seeing anything yet? Is there any clarity to me yet? And Peter immediately responds. That's what Peter did. Uh, foot in mouth. I say that uh, with uh, that being my middle name. So I suffer from the same syndrome that Peter did. And so does my oldest. His middle name is Peter as well. <laughs> uh, and so uh, Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus is like, I think you're starting to get it, but not quite. You're seeing that the way you've built it. And so Peter confesses this. Then Jesus continues to teach them. He says, you're not quite getting it, so I'm going to add more to this. As a matter of fact, in in between chapters 8 and 10, and you can look at this, there are three different times where Jesus explicitly tells them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to raise from the dead. That, that's exactly what's going to happen, guys. And all three times, they're like, huh? What? what? Look at this. And it, the first time that, the, that Jesus predicts this uh, takes place right there in chapter 8. Jesus predicts his death. And then... Uh, Peter comes to him after Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. And Peter, remember his syndrome, pulls Jesus aside and says, no, that's not what's going to happen. Let me tell you. Let me tell you, Jesus, the way that this whole thing is supposed to work out. Let me tell you. And then Jesus says, no, no, how about you get behind me, Satan? Now, in my life, I've been called a lot of things by a lot of people. But if the Son of God <laughs> were to call me Satan, it would level me. It would completely level me. And that's exactly what it does to them. Check this out. The next time, the second time that Jesus predicts his death, uh, he tries to correct them. He pulls them aside. He sits them down. He's trying to be patient with them. And he says, no, guys, this is exactly what's going to happen to me. And then in chapter 9, verse 32, it says this. They still didn't understand him, but they were scared to ask him. Why do you think they were scared to ask him? Because they saw what happened when Peter questioned this. I'm not, whoa, remember that? Remember the whole get behind me Satan thing? I'm a little bit scared to ask him what it means that he's going to die and raise from the dead. And so the second time in this passage where he's trying to get them to see him, I'm not the Messiah you think I am. I'm a different kind of Messiah. I want you to see me the way I want to be seen. They don't get it. In chapter 9, verse 32, they don't get it because they're scared to ask for even more clarity. So a third time. In chapter 10, verse 32 to 34, Jesus predicts his death. Here's what he says. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, 
we're going to Jerusalem. This is where we've been going this whole time. Nine different times, he says, on the way, we're going, we're going. They're on a mission. They're going somewhere. And it says, on the way, on the way, on the way. He says, look, we're going. And I've been telling you this whole time, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He's getting even more specific this time. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and they will spit on him. See the connection? Different kind of spit, not a healing spit. They will flog him and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they don't get it again. You see, after the second time, when they were scared, instead of going to Jesus, what they did is they started arguing with each other about who's best. I'm better, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. And Jesus is like, enough's enough, guys. Well, this time, this third time in chapter 10, he predicts his death again. And instead of asking for more understanding, to seek more clarity, what happens is James and John, they had a different syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> they come walking up to Jesus and they say, look, it's the third time you've said this, man. If this is really going to happen, we've got a request for you. Let me sit on your right. Let him sit on your left. And Jesus is like, you still don't see it. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't see me the way I'm trying to get you to see me. And then Jesus goes and encounters another blind man. And he heals the blind man. And Bartimaeus. So you get through with this whole section, and you're like, whoa, okay, so Jesus heals this blind man, begging on behalf of his friends, but he, tell, he told his disciples to be careful because they were going to be blind to certain things. And then he begins to say, here's the truth. Here's who I am. Here's who I am. Who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Messiah. This is going to be awesome. And he's like, but I'm a different kind of Messiah, and you're not quite seeing it. And he gives more clarity, more clarity, more clarity, and they still don't see it. And he closes out this section, healing yet another blind man, illustrating for us that we can be spiritually blind to everything that's going on around us. And so what does this mean for us? What does this really mean? Well, this entire section, this entire section of Scripture, chapters 8 through 10, and we're actually going to, Ryan's going to jump into some detail uh, there in chapter 9 next week as well, and you'll see more of this come out. This whole thing is about what it means to follow Jesus. It brings the attention to this idea of spiritual blindness that we can develop these blind spots. And, and so we have to really take Christian maturity seriously. That we have to stay aware, to stay alert. And we have to take our spiritual maturity seriously. And it goes beyond simply sitting and listening. And so there's three things I want to pull, three truths I want to pull from this section of Scripture that I think will encourage us and probably make us a little bit uncomfortable. Probably make us a little bit uncomfortable about what it means to mature in Christ. What it means to take spiritual maturity seriously in a world that says take it easy jesus says well i want you to see me a specific way the first thing is this spiritual maturity is personal it's a very personal thing i want you to think about the experience of all the different people that jesus healed all the different experiences that they did i mean with some people jesus simply touched them and healed other times it took spit in the face other times spit in the mud other times jesus just said something and then those people were healed other times somebody just reached through the crowd and simply touched his clothing and they were healed all the different experiences if you gathered all those people up in a room what a cool conversation that would be and the common denominator was this they were all healed by jesus and none of them would give you a cookie cutter explanation as to how that took place and the same thing is true when jesus spiritually heals us we can make it sound like it's just this formula and it loses its personal touch. But look at what Jesus did with this blind man. He says, I'm going to take you by the hand. I want to lead you away from all the people. 
And I want, look, now Jesus did that for a variety of reasons. One of them was to get away from the town to buy time so him and his disciples could get out of there before the word spread. But in addition to that, he wanted to get this blind man by himself so he could say, this is a very personal and intimate thing. And I want to speak directly to you. And I don't want you to go back into that village. This is why he told him not to go back into the village, because that man made his living begging. And he said, the old has passed, the new has come. You have a whole new way of looking at your life. You have clarity like you've never had it before. Don't go back into that village to your old way of living. Everything's different for you now. And he would say the same thing to each and every one of us. All sinners, all of us in need of grace. And what that grace does is it changes everything. One of the most important things you can take from this is this. Every, every single person has a story. And the way I, I wish I could see the look in Jesus' eyes when he was looking at this blind man. I really do. Because every single human being on planet Earth that God looks at, he sees a son or a daughter. He cares. You see, when I look at the blind man, I'm reminded of this truth. Every person has a story. And every story matters. Every one of them. So part of your spiritual maturity is to recognize that your life matters. Your story matters. And that God cares. Second thing is this, spiritual maturity relies on the work of the Holy Spirit. See, the reason that the disciples didn't quite get what was going on in this entire passage of Scripture, uh, they, they couldn't quite wrap their mind around it, is because Jesus hadn't yet resurrected. See, so Jesus kept say, talking about resurrection, but resurrection hadn't happened yet, and oftentimes clarity comes in retrospect. And we have that blessing of knowing that the resurrection happened, and we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. Look, it's not that the healing was ineffective, it was progressive here. And the same thing is true of your spiritual maturity. It's this ongoing movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the primary way that the Holy Spirit brings about your maturity is the Word of God. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Just try to connect the dots with me. I know we're doing a lot of like moving around, but the Bible's important. Okay? And, and here, here's how we'll illustrate this. All the teachings of Jesus, all these words, Jesus in John chapter 16 said, hey, when I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when he comes, he will bring to your minds, he's talking to the disciples, all the words that I've said to you. And they'll all make sense at that time. So then Jesus dies and he resurrects and the Holy Spirit comes and now Holy Spirit comes. And now in this moment, think about all the words that Jesus spoke between Mark 8 and Mark 10. Oh, Oh, it all makes sense now. The healing of the blind man, when all those guys brought their buddy and they were begging. Do you remember that? Now it makes sense. And Bartimaeus, it all makes sense now. Everything he said, he was predicting his death. All of it makes sense now. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was bringing to mind the words of Jesus. And the same thing is what he does in your life. The same thing is what he'll do in your life. He'll continually bring in, in moments of need God's words, and they will begin to make sense in your life. They will begin, so it, it reasons, right? It reasons, it makes sense that if you want clarity out in life, you need to spend more time in here. The more clarity you want with all of your life, the more time you spend here. Why? Because that's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to bring God's word to your mind in moments of need. Look, Charles Spurgeon once said it this way, and I love it. He said, look, um, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to a life that's not. This is what he's talking about. A Bible that's falling apart because it's been read so much and opened so much and poured out over so much is usually belongs to a life that's not falling apart. Why? Because that person is seeking a source of clarity. They're seeking to see things 
the way God intends them to see it. And he's told us that in his word. The third thing is this. Spiritual maturity takes time. It takes time. It's not a microwave effect. Any preacher that tells you that you can change, everything will change right now in this moment, he's lying. Don't listen to him and run away. Maturity takes time. Jesus does not form his artwork in an assembly line. And Paul said that you're God's masterpiece. And God takes time to craft and mold and shape masterpieces. And who you were when you first became a Christian is not who you are now. Why? Because over time you've matured and you've grown. It's kind of like, uh, let me illustrate for you this way. It's like an apple or an orange. Spiritual fruit is going to come in seasons and spurts. And sometimes it's going to feel like there's no maturity taking place. It's going to feel dormant. It's going to feel like Renee said, winter. Are we not glad that's over, right? Now, it's going to feel like nothing's happening, but really, God is using those dormant times, those seemingly insignificant times, to prepare you for a season of fruit and growth. In the same way, you, you, don't, you don't watch fruit trees grow in real time. Like Nobody does that. Please tell me you don't do that, right? <laughs> uh, let me illustrate for you this way. Right? It's planting season. Many of you are going to go and start planting. Gardens and farmers are going to plant. And we're going to watch this growth take place over time. My drive to work over the next few months begins to look different because the fields begin to develop and grow. But I don't sit there day in and day out and watch it. Over a period of time, that growth begins to take place and that maturity begins to take place. Over a period of time, and then all of a sudden you notice, man, more growth now than there was a couple months ago. This is the same way the Holy Spirit works in your life. This is the same way that you mature. It takes time. It takes patience. And this is how God wants to work. All of this brings clarity. We have to be people who take our maturity seriously. We have to be people who are willing to take the time to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives so we can see. We have to be people that see that when look at us, that when God looks at us, it's with this face of compassion. And God wants to continually ask us the same question. But he asked his disciples. And he's going to ask it multiple times in your spiritual walk. He's going to pause. He's going to take you by the hand. He's going to walk you outside the town, away from all distractions. He's going to ask you a very difficult question, one that I'm going to ask you today as we close out, that you have to answer on your own. And Jesus is going to look at you, and he's going to say, I know what everybody else is saying, but who do you say that I am? Do you see me clearly? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for calling us to clarity. Thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you that all of our mistakes and all of our messing up doesn't stop you from seeing us with compassion. Man, I need that. Father, would you forgive us for being blind and not seeing you with clarity? Thank you. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for this study that we've been in and how it's leading us to see you the way you want us to see you. Help us come to your word and seek to understand you based on what you've said, not us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to use a song to get ready for communion, but I want to give you a thought, something to wrestle with right here in this moment. And it's one that I've been wrestling with since my discipleship group met on Friday night. We're studying through the book of Philippians and a question was asked that I haven't been able to stop thinking about and it's hard. And so I don't want you to hear this question and begin to beat yourself up. I want you to hear this question and then come to communion. I want you to hear this question and then come to the altar 
where you can confess and repent your sins, of your sins and you can experience anew the grace of God. Because His grace is sufficient. But it's a challenging question, one that's been rocking me for a few days and will probably continue. And the question was asked, if everybody in the world followed Jesus like I follow Jesus, what would happen? Would people be in God's word? Would they be submitting to his lordship? Would they treat people with kindness and respect? Would they see him clearly? If everybody in the world followed Jesus the way I'm following him, what would happen? We prepare for communion. Allow this time to align your heart with his. Let's stand and sing.